seems to be particularly difficult for human beings, for us humans, to want to know more when we perceive that the people that we love are making bad decisions. It's really, really hard to be curious in those moments. But any of those sort of like decision moments where it's like, okay, how am I going to respond to this person who's doing something that I really disagree with? I really disagree with it. Wanting to know more, leaning into curiosity and trying to move away from judgment is always going to be the answer. So curiosity is how we connect. Curiosity and vulnerability are how we connect. Everybody, welcome to another fabulous edition of This Week in Mormons. I'm Jeff Openshaw, your host and founder. Thank you for taking the time to be with us this week. We hope it'll be a rewarding and fruitful time for all involved. Uh, it's an interview week this week. We're excited to do that. I am joined, of course, by Josie Gleave. Hello, Josie. Hello. How you doing? I'm doing great. Just sweating in my little sweaty Singapore apartment as usual. So you know, one not does, much but- has changed. At the time we're recording this, I'm just glad I don't live like in Texas, uh, for example, with whatever is happening in that part of the world. It's true. I have family in Texas. They're struggling. I hope they're doing okay. By the time everyone hears this, we will know if Texas still exists or not. But I think for now we're doing okay. Uh, Anyway, so we're excited this week. We're going to have an interesting discussion about sort of what can, it's hard to encapsulate all this, but what can drive some people away from the church, especially younger, not younger, like teenagers, but you know, young adults essentially can maybe drive them away from the church as far as family relationships and what can cause that. And we're very excited to bring in Liz McDonald Brown, who has recently, who worked on a paper involving this for Utah Valley University, talking about disaffiliated uh, Latter-day Saint young adults. Liz works in student support and restorative practices at Wasatch, Wasatch, Wasatch Charter School in Holiday, Utah. And in that role, she works with parents and faculty to develop plans for students who might be struggling socially, academically, emotionally, or behaviorally. She also does mediation and conflict resolution for the school. Uh, in the evenings, Liz teaches parenting classes at Parent from the Inside Out, as well as coaching for parents and individuals. She lives with her husband, three children, and a dog named Winston, who is the favored person in the family we just found out and and as her if her plate is not full enough she is awaiting acceptance into a phd program for counseling uh, psychology so the study we're going to talk about today looks at young adults who have left the church and their parents perceived quote religious rigidity and in so doing liz interviewed a, a handful of people but we'll let her talk about that so we're very happy to welcome to this week in mormons liz brown mcdonald how you doing great thanks so much i'm so happy to be here yeah, we appreciate you taking the time to be with us. So d- tell us about the study. Like what, what took you into this place? Can you define religious rigidity, for example? And uh, like what made you decide to interview people about their disaffiliation from the church? Yeah, um, it took some circling in on to try to figure out what exactly I wanted to look at with this study. Um, and I landed on the term religious rigidity in part kind of in response to and in the context of Brene Brown's work, which has been so transformative in the field of vulnerability and shame. Um, And I think I was trying to kind of come up with a term that would, I guess, give an idea of what the opposite might be to that vulnerability within Mormon families. And there was something that I, that I saw and that I perceived and that I had experienced to some degree myself um, as a disaffiliated Mormon. And so I, yeah, I was just looking for like 
vulnerability would be so helpful in these family situations that I was watching and what's happening in the absence of the vulnerability and the term that I landed on and kind of observed over the months as I was developing the study was rigidity. Um, just sort of this fixed worldview, I guess, is what I was trying to evoke with that terminology. And it really, um, it transpired out of my work teaching parenting classes. And so I teach parenting classes in the evenings. Um, and I love doing that. I love working with parents. We have an amazing community of parents that comes back and back and back. And um, I've seen so many parents making the same types of mistakes, and I am one of them. I have three kids, and I've made all of the mistakes. I feel like um, parenting is one of the hardest things that most people eventually end up doing. Like, almost all of us will end up doing it eventually, and it's so incredibly difficult. Um, and so I'm, I guess, having watched the ways in which the children that I work with at the school and then their parents also sort of like suffer what in ways that I feel like are pretty unnecessary um, when particularly as children are growing up and there may be like a values disparity between generations. There's a disconnect and a sort of like a deep sense of rejection on the part of the parents where then often if the parents are hurt enough, they'll quit showing up in the same way for the child. Um, and when I say child, often this child is, you know, like 20 or 25. Um and so that looks really, it looks sad to me. And one of the things that I thought was really, really interesting was in our parenting classes, we've had a number of immigrant families. And so we've had parents from Czech Republic and India and South and Central America and all over. And what I started seeing was this sense of rejection that was very similar to the sense of rejection that I saw in Mormon parents when children disaffiliated from their religion, from their faith. Um, and it just, it looked so similar that I started to wonder in what ways might this rejection and sort of the acculturation gap or the values gap between the generations be similar for Mormon families when a child chooses to disaffiliate as it is to like, you know, an Indian mother who's deeply grieved that her child maybe is not gonna go to college or doesn't want an advanced degree um, and where those values just aren't matching up anymore, where the child is individuating in a way that looks very foreign and kind of frightening and feels like a rejection to the parent. And so I wanted to sort of get a better understanding of that dynamic. And I just decided to start with the children, um, partly because I was a student at the time. And so I had access to a lot of young adults and in my work in conflict resolution and mediation, I know it's important to start with victims. And I think that more often than not, the children are the victim. I think that the harm is the harm that is being done by the parents is um, it's unintentional. I think all of the intentions are good. I've met parents, uh, I mean, over the years that are, you know, some of them are doing things that are really hurting their children, but in no cases has it been because they don't care or because they're not invested or because they're not being thoughtful. It's, um, it's sort of for lack of better information. And so I just thought, well, I'd like to take a stab at giving better information to Mormon parents about the experience of these children as they disaffiliate from the LDS church. That's interesting. So do you feel like you mentioned yourself, you are disaffiliated from the church. Are you, um, 
Are you trying to to drive that point home or are you simply trying to provide a resource for parents who want to raise their kids in a healthy environment? And in their mind, that might mean hopefully keeping people in such a place that they are either staying in the church or that the, or that the family is just comfortable acknowledging if one leaves the church. Basically, I'm curious, like what the maybe what the goal is in doing this research in the end game and how, who you're helping who you're hoping to help, yeah. uh, you know, and why, and what you see down the line, like what's, what defines success from this? Yeah. I think my main drive is to restore and repair family relationships as much as possible and to prevent damage, to pre- prevent disconnection um, as much as possible, because I think that the disconnection, which often follows religious disagreement, particularly within covenantal faiths, um, such as the LDS faith, I think is just really unnecessary. Um, and I think if, if parents and children had a better understanding of what healthy individuation looks like and what is required really for healthy individuation, meaning when a child becomes an adult and adopts and integrates and, um, you know, sort of defines their own values set in the world for like, this is how I'm going to be in the world. This is my way of being in the world. This is what feels right to me. Um, so much of that is just necessary and appropriate human development. And from a psychological perspective, there's no gray area there. It's not like, well, but it might also be better if they just keep aligning with their parents' values. That's actually really counter to healthy development. And so I think my hope is that if we could give better understanding of what healthy development looks like, that maybe parents could give their children a little bit more grace um, and have a little bit less fear around what feels like a really personal rejection. Um, and that children could have a lot less shame around what is just healthy and appropriate in terms of growing up. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're hitting on some really interesting points that um, those feelings that parents have of, you know, they, they probably feel like I've raised my child in one particular way and I have hopes and um, maybe even dreams for what they're going to go off and do. And then they go off and <laughs> they do different things or they do whatever they want. Um And I think that that's really, that's got to be such a challenge as a parent to watch that process because, um, you know, when they're really little kids, you, you have a level of control and then they grow up and they make their own choices. (laughs) Um, and I think it's an interesting point that you're, um, comparing, um, to other families and that this isn't necessarily just like a religious, um, family sort of situation, but obviously that the study focuses on specifically like religious families. So, um, for a little bit of background, you, um, were interviewing a couple of different or sorry, about 15, um, assuming they were students at the time, but they were all between about 18 to 30 years old. And, um, they had self-identified as having experienced some conflict with their parents when they were trying to leave the church. Um, And so there was some really heartbreaking feedback in this study, but um, I also feel like maybe to some people, they would think that this is uh, like that if you're, 
you're reaching out to study this particular topic that of course you're going to get, you know, the feedback from people who have had a really, really rough time. Did you feel like that skewed any of the results or did you still feel like that's a very valid like perspective to have, even though it may not have been, or it certainly hasn't been like everybody's experience or even like a general experience in like the Utah Valley area? Right. I think that's really important. I'm glad that you brought it up that this, I, um, I recruited my sample for this study looking for in the language that I used in the recruitment materials were if you feel you have experienced family conflict, specifically with your parents, due to what you perceive to be religious rigidity, um, you know, give me a call, send me an email. And so that's how I found my sample was particularly like looking for families that had experienced this type of conflict and children, you know, who obviously had um, felt wounded really by the kind of conflict that they had had. And I know that there are lots and lots of families who don't experience this kind of conflict. And so um, I know that there are a lot of LDS parents who handle a child's disaffiliation better And I would be really interested to study those families as well. I have so many ideas. I have like 10 years worth of studies in my head that I would like to do kind of in follow up to this, um, knowing that there are parents who handle it better and children who handle it better with less shame. And so, yeah, I think this, this sample was recruited specifically because of the conflict that they had experienced. Hmm. And so one example of that, or I think that you pointed out that, um, that some Christian churches, um, and ours in particular may have a bit of a harder time as parents, because, you know, you're, when someone leaves our church is not really just, it's, it's not a lifestyle choice necessarily. Although some of it may, that may have been like the start of, um, that reasoning, but for the family, they feel as if it has, you know, eternal consequences. Um, and like the covenants that we make that it, do you think that that's why it's perhaps harder for us to accept another person's decisions to leave the church? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, there was a really, really interesting study that was done about the process of leaving a covenantal religion and they studied, Orthodox Judaism and other sorts of evangelical Christian religions, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and determined that leaving a covenantal religion where it's not a lifestyle, like you were saying, it's a covenant. This is an agreement that you're making with God um, to behave and to live and to believe and to really think in a certain way. Um, Obviously, the meaning that is made out of choosing to leave that is very different from like when I lived, I lived in Oklahoma for a couple of years and people invited me to their churches just twice a week, at least like some neighbor that I hardly knew would like, you should come to our church. It's so great. The kids get to go to this arcade while we go to meeting, (laughs) you know, and I'd like, Oh, cool. That sounds way better than like trying to wrestle my kids through sacrament meeting. Um, And so those, you know, like switching congregations in one of those sort of like um, come as you are religions, I guess. And I don't say that I don't want to be derogatory or, you know, demeaning in any way, but switching religions or switching congregations in in that sort of uh, worldview is very different 
from leaving um, like the LDS faith where it's not just about you. You are disrupting this eternal family um, that all of the subjects in my study, all 15 of them were born into the covenant, as they say. They were all born into active LDS families. Um, Parents had been married in the temple. And so they were, in many cases, the first person in their family. Some of them had siblings who had also disaffiliated, but many of them were the first and so far the only person to sort of disrupt that picture of the eternal family that the parents had invested so much time and faith and energy and love, honestly, in. And so the meaning making around that decision is very, very different, obviously, from leaving. Um, Yeah, it's not, (laughs) you're not quitting the gym. Like, this is different. It's a different thing. This is, it's a big, big deal. Unless it's that episode of Friends when they try to quit the gym. (laughs) Because we you, you know the where one. that's even you know. even harder apparently i totally yeah. know the one yeah you know the one <laughs> but um <laughs> but this i think it's interesting too because i feel like you know you mentioned a come as you are church and i i feel like in many ways especially in the past i don't know 5 6 years or so i think publicly we have tried to be within the church of jesus christ of latter day saints a little bit more like that i think our the messaging we're putting out there we're trying to be more inviting like that now affecting good culture change is a whole different thing. And that's that's a major work in progress in the church. But like you did say, it's compounded by the fact, though, that we are still a covenantal faith. Like we can be as come as you are as we want all day long, say everyone truly is welcome. Like we mean that. We're getting better about it. We're not going to be judgy if someone who smells like, like you know, stale alcohol and whatever else rolls in for sacrament. Like that's great. <laughs> be here. We're happy you're here. But at the end of the day, We do have these other areas where you have to live in a certain way to engage in certain covenants. And that is the only way that families are together forever is the shorthand of it. I think, you know, within that, there's some people that have different beliefs. And I think that that does, like you said, complicate things a great deal. And one of the real takeaways I had in reading your paper was like I saw that, you know, there's a lot of pain, a lot of hurt from the subjects for sure. And understandably so. And I felt like so much of it also like, and you hinted at this, so much of it came out of good intentions from parents, but even parents who might, I think, have been misinformed about what the church actually teaches on certain issues. And that's, of course, like, it's just as easy as it is for us to not live the commandments, to not be as covenantal as we should be. It's also very easy for us to go beyond the mark. And I think especially when you're parenting, you know, I have kids too, you get so stressed out about wanting them to fit the mold and the plan you have for them and everything you want for them, because you know, you've lived life and you understand, you know, follow these steps and you will be well. Um, and when they don't do that, it's super, super frustrating. But I just, I felt like, um, like there was one quote here where I think, uh, what was it subject six said something along the lines of like Mormons emphasize listening to the Holy Ghost and disregarding your own feelings about everything. What you want doesn't matter. And that makes me feel like a failure more or less. I think that's a very real sentiment, but I also feel like hearing that I'm like, well, I don't think that's exactly our doctrine. Right. But, but, but that subject was raised essentially in one way or another, he or she inferred that or the parents taught him that. And that's a real shame because I think we can sometimes we go beyond the mark in our attempt to be pious in a way. And in so doing, we can inadvertently teach others things that are, you know, a little, I must say too orthodox, but a little too much perhaps. Because yes, we do believe that you should listen to the spirit and act upon it. But we also believe that you study things out in your mind and in your heart and you make decisions on your own and seek confirmation from God. And if you're not teaching kids that, 
then they're going to wind up in a situation like this where they feel like it's all about like get in line and shut up and and that's that. And so I, I found I thought yeah. I feel like that was a reasonably common thread there. I don't know if you that was the one example from one subject, but did you do you think that's a mm-hmm. a justifiable thought? Yeah, I think so. And I I hear what you're saying about it's it's not when it's said like that, there, I don't think there's any Orthodox or unorthodox Mormon who would be like, well, yeah, that's what the manual says. That's what we're supposed to believe. Um, like, it sounds pretty messed up to, th- to say that, to say that, like, you should trust the spirit. And I would say, I would add to that um, a higher authority. And for women, that's mm-hmm. always going to be a man, which is a problem, I think. Um, and... Yeah, and that when that's in contradiction to your own voice, there's a problem in you. And so your sense, kind of your gut sense or your insight, your intuition, your connection to the spirit um, can so easily be sort of sidelined or negated or I think honestly like kind of parented out, which is what I've seen a lot of parents doing, Mm -hmm. that they're sort of like parenting that intuition out um, and really emphasizing obedience over the kind of autonomy that you have to develop in order to trust your own voice. And I remember that subject in particular saying that she was taught, among other things, to always, that every guy deserved one date. So no matter how, and she's very beautiful, no matter how creepy, um, no matter how inappropriate, that every guy deserved one date. And so just things like that, that are like, Really, though, like when your gut is saying like, no, that was a pretty standard, right? Look, look, I I have benefited. I have benefited (laughs) from the open mindedness of beautiful women. I would not be where I am today. Not for that. Yeah. You might have gone on a date with with subject number six. I don't know. (laughs) My wife is way out of my league in terms of looks. And I recognize. Well, and. And further down the line, I remember talking to, this was not a part of my study, but just talking to a friend um, several years years ago who was, she had gone on a, a few dates with somebody that she had met online. And she had told me that they, I think, um, it was like she was like getting out of his truck and walking to her car and everything in her was telling her to run like run. This woman was in her fifties. Um, and then she turned to me and she said, but you know what? We're engaged now. Heavenly father just had a different path for me and we're going to get married. And I remember being like trying to pick my jaw up off the floor. Um, because I know, I know, I feel like I know what she understood about the Holy ghost and what she misunderstood about the Holy ghost in my experience, the spirit, the Holy ghost, whatever that is, Um, when it has been working well for me has magnified my own desires and my own intuition and my own needs and wants, my own safety, my own sense of the world. And it has really never been in like direct contradiction in that way, where I have a sense of like, I need like that self-preservation instinct that this friend was describing that then she described that like, well, but the Holy ghost told me that we should get engaged. So instead of running away, they got married and I don't need to tell you how that ended. It was not, it was not good. Um, it didn't last very long. It was very tumultuous. And so the number of stories that I've heard like that, um, where, and I don't know, I, it's mostly women that I've heard stories like that from. So I don't know if men internalize that in a different way because they have a different type of authority 
to believe their own voices within the church. Um, but particularly for women, I do think that that teaching of sort of ignore your own voice, um, check in with what the Holy Ghost wants you to do, and then believe that, believe that externalized sense of what's right and wrong for you instead of your own internalized sense of what's right and wrong for you. And I, I think it's just like, it's such a subtle difference because I'm a huge believer in intuition and the Holy Ghost and the Spirit, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think the semantics are not super important, but I think um, that bringing it inside of you and acknowledging that that's actually a part of the divine that is in all of us um, and that it really, it really doesn't act in ways that are counter or like antithetical to our own knowings or to our own perceptions or our own sense of right and wrong in the world. Hmm. Yeah. I think that that's correct. The, the feeling that, um, at least in my own personal experience, I've never really felt that the Holy ghost or my own intuition has been super, um, like contradictory to what maybe you'd say like your gut feeling is. Um, if maybe you feel listen, like physically different parts of your body, <laughs> one in your heart and one in your tummy, I don't yeah. know, but, yeah. um, um, <laughs> they've always felt like a bit of the same to me. And when we talk about, um, the Holy ghost and the ideas that you get, at least the way that it was kind of always taught from me, it was that, you know, if it's something positive or something that would keep you safe, then, um, like, then that's, that's the good part. Like, that's the thing that is like, it's working, it's positive for you. Um, so that's, that's an interesting perspective. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, uh, cause you've mentioned shame and, uh, there was another concerning piece of feedback that I read from one of the subjects who felt that, um, the church teaches you to either to lie or, or at least just to hide the behavior that doesn't quite fit within the church's teachings. Um, and that's, I also, I think where a lot of us uh, or a lot of people would feel like this is you know, at times we're not a come as you are church because yes, we say come and welcome, but then we also, you know, if you dig one layer deeper, we, it, it can look like we have a lot of rules. Um, and personally, I, I disagree with this and do think that we try to at least try to foster honesty. Um, but I do think that those statements um, that a lot of these subjects have said like came from a lot of feelings of shame. And that's a very, very real feeling. And to me should be read as like a warning sign that something's off and that um, maybe, I, d I don't know how it's happened, but perhaps some of the teachings like focused more on obedience um, and perhaps obedience in like a very fearful kind of way so that um, I, I guess I just don't think that shame is ever really a productive <laughs> emotion or feeling. Um, and I hear a lot of people refer to like, they're more like, quote unquote, they're Mormon shame. And so that's a thing, even though I don't personally feel it and don't really understand it, but I do think that we're missing the mark somewhere. So from what you have been studying and from your experiences as well, from speaking with other people, like, where does that shame come from? I think for the subjects within my study and just in my observation of children and families in my work, 
the shame almost always comes from the space between um, the ideal self, the goal, um, and the reality. And I think we all have space there, right? That there's this divine, you know, that one of the beautiful doctrines within Mormonism is that we are destined to become gods. Um, And the ways in which that can be sort of like, I think misunderstood is to, you know, the fake it till you make it school of thought that like, well, I'm not quite godlike yet, but I'll make sure that my neighbors think that I am. And that's really simplistic and I think reductive and, um, and not super fair to just put it out there like that. But I think it's the quickest way. I think everyone knows what I'm talking about when I say fake it till you make it. Um, that Mormons can tend to be invulnerable and can tend to look quite perfect um, in, in pretty unattainable and unrealistic ways. And so um, that's anytime you have space between an unattainable ideal, which is the only, and in, in Mormonism, unfortunately um, it is, that's the self that's worthy of love and belonging. If God's love and parents love. And I want to come back to that in a second because I think there's it's hard to differentiate between the two. Um, there's always going to be space between that and just the why is this so hard? Like no matter how hard you're trying as a human being that's mortal in a body, there are things that are just hard. And if you're the only person who thinks that it, you're having a hard time with it, if you think that all of your neighbors are like just breezing through whatever it might be, then I think it's very isolating and very shame producing. And I think that that sort of feature of the conditional construct of love, um, that like there is this ideal self that would be worthy of love, but I'm not that. And so I'm not, I'm not worthy of love. That is something that's, that was featured in every single one of the interviews that I conducted where, um, they were all adults. And so I think they had started to disentangle the difference between their parents' love and God's love. But as children, we're not capable of doing that. Children just, they do not have the prefrontal cortex doesn't really fully come online until like the mid twenties for most of us. And so that sort of like abstract conceptualization, we conceive God as our parents. There's, it's almost impossible for us until later stages of adulthood even to start to detangle that. And so if we perceive that our parents approve of one type of behavior, um, but we can't always produce that kind of behavior, um, then we perceive the same that the same is also true of God and that God's love is really conditional upon us being worthy. And I, for, the, for a couple of years after I got divorced, um, I was the pianist in primary. My kids, I wasn't even really an active Mormon at that point, but my kids were going to church in a different ward in another city. And I just felt like I wanted to pay it forward. I knew that somebody was like wrangling my kids through sharing time in primary and all of that stuff. And I wanted to be of service in my congregation. And so I started playing piano. I played for, I don't know, two or three years in my little ward in American Fork. And it was mostly wonderful. Um, and I would hear things every once in a while that felt profoundly spiritually abusive to me. Um, 
in the ways in which God's love was talked about, in the ways in which it was talked about how you could lose the, the spirit, um, that the Holy Ghost would leave you if you weren't good enough, that, that, and the idea is sort of this conceptualization that Heavenly Father and God's love and approval and with it, the Holy Ghost would leave when you made a mistake and that then you had to really work hard to get it to come back. And that felt to me to be really problematic just because my own experiences with God um, on whatever limited basis I have experienced the love of God, it has been so much more compassionate than my own <laughs> voice, so much more compassionate than all of the voices in my head that are, you're not good enough. You're not really, oh, well, you're such a screw up. All That's me. That's never been God. That's never been Jesus. That's never been the Holy Ghost. And when there has been space between me and God or me and Jesus and me and the Holy Ghost, that has been me. It's been me pulling away because of shame. And so I think that that shame construct and the construct of the conditional nature of our parents' love and then sort of how that gets extrapolated into the conditional nature of God's love is really problematic and really harmful, I guess, to our, to our children in particular. And I know, obviously, you mentioned your, your sample is not meant to be representative. You know, you chose your sample. And, and it, basically, I think everyone was from the Wasatch Front, except for one from Idaho, if I don't... If, if, yeah, one I'm from mistaken. Idaho and but, one from the Midwest, yeah. But but pretty Mormon corridor-esque. And I guess this is only a notional, but do you think any of the results would be slightly different? And again, you didn't you didn't do a sample of like what percentage of people have this problem in Utah, obviously, but do you think the results would potentially be different somewhere outside of an area where Latter-day Saints dominate religiously and culturally, like, like along the Mormon corridor, like if you were pulling people from Michigan or Latter-day Saints from California, like for example? Yeah, I think that's such an interesting question and I would love the opportunity to really get the answer. My suspicion, I think like you, is that it would be different, that if the sample were different um, and more diverse and more geographically diverse specifically, that the ways in which Mormons experience Mormonism and practice Mormonism is, are different when they're less concentrated. Um, and that's actually, like, that's featured in my own experience. Both of my parents grew up in, um, <laughs> I don't know if we should say less than orthodox families, um, but I had... Yeah, they just had very unorthodox upbringings, and both of them ended up being kind of the only, the only child in their family who got married in the temple initially. And so they have, you know, I grew up with inactive aunts and uncles and grandparents, and um, and knowing that um, people make different choices about what to put in their bodies, what to drink at dinner, what to, you know, and just not really making very much of that. And so I think that the looseness with which my family was able to hold our religion in some ways was informed by that, just by the fact that we loved so many very good, very decent people who were showing that there was like a different way to live a responsible adult life. <laughs> you know, like none of them were shooting heroin or in prison, but none of them had a temple recommend, none of them, you know. And so I really appreciated having that kind of nuance in my family. Um, and I, I think it was a real, um, just a blessing to me in my life and eventually kind of a blessing to my parents as well, that they were able to hold more space for different kinds of decisions that my siblings and I might make as we reached adulthood. 
And so, yeah, I do think that the sample would be or could be very different if the sample were more diverse. Yeah. And I also think, of course, you know, we talk about, we talk about shame. We talk about the cultural pressures of somewhere where we're more dense, where we're denser like Utah. At the same time, you know, if you're somewhere like, if you're in California, for example, still a lot of Latter-day Saints, but then I think the whole, you know, you are the beautiful candle for all to look up to that, those other pressures start to factor in where it's like, it's great that I'm one that I have all these wonderful people who aren't members of the church, but at the same time, it is incumbent upon me to be an example of righteousness to the whole world. Yeah. Um, even if I'm, I'm not dealing with the judginess of somewhere where we're more concentrated, but at the same time, now I have to live up to it and be a light on the hill yeah. for everybody else. So yeah, if it's like, like, we can't win. We should, yeah. <laughs> I think we all just need to move to Slovenia like and just do that. It sounds good. Let's go. So um, I I think Jeff and I were both uh, kind of surprised by like the incredible lengths some of these interview subjects were going to like keep up the appearances before they could like officially get you know, the words out to their parents and let them know, like, this is not going to be a part of my life. And like, some of them would be like reading the lesson manuals before they visited their parents so that it would look like they had, you know, been to church or been to Sunday school, or like wearing Sunday attire that they like literally just got up and got dressed to go to their parents or driving around for hours to look like they had gone to church. Um, and we laugh, but like that's genuinely sad that anyone feels they need to do this. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really sad. But then there, yeah. like to me, that then there was like the next level of riskier behavior. Like that that level stuff is you know kind of funny. Like oh, okay, you know they just dressed up for their parents or whatever. But then there's the other stuff that, um, yeah, you would define as like risky behavior. And some of those examples. Um, uh, could you explain some of those um, examples that you had heard of, um, yeah, behaviors that you would think, oh, like the driving around, that's not really harming anyone, but like this is a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had the best time. I like, I can't even tell you how much fun I had talking to these subjects. They were <laughs> all so funny and so smart and so like, None of them were still doing this, thank heavens. But like when they talked about the lengths that they would go to, like dressing up in church clothes and like reading online and then like driving around for a few hours and making sure that they knew what to talk about. Like I think about even when I was active, if my parents would have asked me what we talked about in Sunday school, I'd be like, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) It would have to be like really (laughs) memorable for me to have any idea what I sat through usually. And you could get by with that one anyway, because, you know, half the people are looking at their phones during the lessons nowadays anyway. Exactly. So I don't know. It's, I don't know. That you've got anyway. an alibi no matter what. You're never one of those, yeah. Jeff. We know. No, I usually use the excuse of young children to get out of elders' quorum. <laughs> That's, you know, I, I have to. I have to wander. I'm a hall wanderer <sighs> in a normal life. That's where the kids but finally, like- yeah, become worthwhile. But there were... <laughs> there were- <laughs> That's when it's like, ah, ah, I see what you're good for now. Okay. Um, but yeah, they, there were a number of subjects who talked about pretty risky behaviors. Unprotected sex was by far the most common. So the kids who were sexually active in high school um, had unprotected sex routinely. Um, and that was really just the sort of, it was very practical that like, well, 
I grew up in this town where there was one grocery store. And if I went to the grocery store, I knew all of the checkers and they all knew my mom and like, I couldn't buy condoms. So I, most of them knew, you know, like they were young enough that like, it wasn't a surprise that they should be using protection. And there was just no way that they would risk that risk being found out as being sexually active. And so what they risked instead was STIs, pregnancy, all sorts of other things. Um, And then there was one subject who, this one really broke my heart. She was 15 and she had a boyfriend that she was kind of sneaking around with. She knew she wasn't supposed to be dating until she was 16. And um, she didn't use the words when she was talking to me, she didn't use the word sexual assault, but she described a sexual assault. And after she had finished telling me what had happened, I said, well, that sounds to me like a sexual assault. Did he rape you? And she said, well... I guess so. And she sort of had hedged around it, but that's what had happened. Like in matter of fact, he had raped her. Um, and she never told anyone. I, th- I think I might've been the first person that she had ever told because her perception at 15 was that if she told anyone, um, she would just be in trouble for dating before she was 16. And so that was just a secret that she had to keep. And then there were a number, um, the kind of the more like current version of this for all of these young adults was almost all of them talked about hiding any sort of ongoing difficulty, whether it was like a mental health difficulty, like depression, where maybe they felt like they needed to get into therapy or maybe they needed medication or maybe, um, you know, financial difficulties or a couple of them had been divorced, which was really painful and difficult, obviously Um, just relationship difficulties, being out of work, things like that that they would hide all of those kinds of difficulties from their parents for fear that the parents would use it as validation that they were being punished by God. And for, um, yeah, just out of this, this sort of like apprehension that the parents would ascribe any suffering, any difficulty, any hardship to the fact that they had left the church and that the solution would be like, well, if you came back to church, You know, why don't you just come back to church? And that solution had been offered enough times in different stages of difficulty that the children just started. um, Some of them talked about like almost putting on a different face and speaking with a different voice when they went to their parents' houses, that they had sort of this like really cheerful, I would say invulnerable, right? Like impervious bulletproof front that they would put up when they went to their parents' um, just so that they wouldn't risk that level of feedback, I guess. And that was really. It sounds exhausting. Like to say the least. Yeah. 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 I mean, you can't, you can't keep that up for that long before you just break down. Right. But also it just, it just leaves you alone, which leaves you vulnerable to, I think just, uh, potentially more pain. <laughs> I mean, and so I, I do actually think that this was kind of um, portrayed in um, another subject. You had one um, participant who uh, identified themselves as transgender and they made a very poignant statement that it's just been like ingrained in my brain and I haven't been able to get it out. Um, and they said that when referring to their parents that, um, or they said, 
My younger brother is still active and they've shifted all their hopes and dreams to him now. I wish that they put more priority in our relationship. One of the things that really bugs me about the church is how everyone is trained to be excited about the end, to just endure to the end um, when you die and go to heaven. And it robs the luster from relationships. Um, And that last bit, the robbing the luster of relationships, I was really kind of disturbed by, but could think of, you know, potential examples that I've seen throughout my life of maybe where that applies. Um, So do you think that it's the case that Mormons were not particularly good at being present um, in like the current moment? And if so, like, why is this? Yeah, I think, um, unfortunately, I think that that is common for Mormons to be so invested in enduring till the end, as this um, person stated. And there were, this came up with a lot of subjects, this idea of enduring till the end and the emphasis on the eternal family. Um, There was another subject who was, I think she was 21 or 22. She was really young. And she talked about how she, she said, I don't know how to comfort my parents anymore when we get together they act like I've died. Um, and it's like her mm. parents are so preoccupied with the loss of their eternal family as they had envisioned it, that they can't enjoy the time that they actually have together. They're eating Sunday dinner together. She's there. She's young. She's you know energetic and vibrant and wants so much to feel connected to them. But the parents are sort of ruminating. They're caught in this loop of, I just hope I get you with me in the next life. There were multiple subjects who quoted their mothers in particular as saying almost those exact words. I just hope I get you with me in the next life. And these kiddos are sitting here saying like, well, I'm here right now. Like, is this what it's going to be like? Cause I don't know if I want that. <laughs> is that all? Like, why, why do you want me with you? If this is what it's going to be like, I don't know if I'm into it. And that was really, really sad. Hmm. That just made me think about one time on my mission, you know, we always tried to play the uh, eternal families lesson card because that's one of those, one of those things to bring people in for interest. Like, look at what we have here. You don't have, you don't have that in this Catholic (laughs) country that we're in. Like, come on, folks. I remember I was talking to one guy, I'm like, so you can be with your family forever. And he's just like, why would I want to be with my family forever? (laughs) (laughs) And I had I had nothing. Oh. I was like I because you love them and you want. Uh, I yeah. don't. I'm gonna go talk contact someone else. Um, yeah. Yeah. I I guess it's it's hard because it's like I think some of the answers should be obvious, but like what can parents do then? I mean, I think the obvious an- answers are to just love their kids, be more open minded, but at the same time, we do have to recognize their very real pain and struggle as as individuals of faith who truly believe that their child is their child's salvation is imperiled or right. Um, and that's a hard place to be. And it's hard to tell somebody who's like that concerned about that. Just ease up, take it easy. All you can do is love your kid. So other than me saying that, like, what do you, what do you think you can do as parents? If you're in a situation like this, where you have a child leaving and you're deeply uncomfortable with it and there's no way you're going to be comfortable with it, but you still love your kid yeah. and you want them. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked because (laughs) I think there are so many ways, small and large, that parents can kind of practice this. And it doesn't have to be over religious disaffiliation. It can be over like 
the three-year-old who's just like throwing a tantrum on the floor of the grocery store and humiliating you. You wish you could like sink <laughs> into the floor like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Everyone's staring at me. That's not my kid. I've never seen them before. You know, maybe doing one of those. Um, but I think it seems to be particularly difficult for human beings, for all, us humans, to want to know more when we perceive that the people that we love are making bad decisions. It's really, really hard to be curious in those moments. When we see a three-year-old, our three-year-old, throwing a tantrum on the floor, I don't know about you, but if it's someone else's three-year-old, I'm just like, oh, good luck. I'm glad it's not mine. Um, there's no judgment. It's just like, oh, thank you. Good luck. Really, truly, like, namaste. I wish you all the luck with that. <laughs> but, um, or like on a plane or something, you know, back when we used to get to go places and it was fun. But... Um, whether it's the child throwing a tantrum on the floor, whether it's the 15-year-old who's, you know, like my 15-year-old who brought a, a dress home. She went shopping with a friend for a dress for a dance. And she took it out of the bag and I thought I was being punked. Like, <laughs> I was like, wait, this is the joke dress, right? <laughs> like, you're not really, are you serious? Um, or whether it's a child who's, you know, You're like, so what are you wearing over the dress? Yeah, was- yeah. Show me... Show me what goes under and over the stress. Um, But any of those sort of like decision moments where it's like, okay, how am I going to respond to this person who's doing something that I really disagree with? I really disagree with it. Um, Wanting to know more, leaning into curiosity and trying to move away from judgment is always going to be the answer. So curiosity is how we connect. Curiosity and vulnerability are how we connect. And so like that story with my daughter in the dress, um, I had to get really, really clear. Since we don't go to church, she I haven't raised her with this like Mormon worldview, Mormon mindset. I had to get really clear about why I was bothered. Why do I do I still value modesty? And if so, why? I had to like bring that home. And I, I'm sure I did a whole bunch of things wrong in the moment. And when there's space in the conversation or when there's distance in the relationship, I just know that like, well, the conversation's not over yet. So we kept coming back to it and I kept like, Oh, I'm a little uncomfortable still. Can we talk? I've been thinking and tell me more, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. What are you thinking? How does that make you feel when you put it on? Like put it on for me. Let me see. How do you feel when you're wearing that? So trying to get curious enough to want to know more is I think the key. And I, I see how hard that is for parents at every stage of the game, whether it's a battle over bedtime with a toddler or a religious disagreement with a young adult or all of the conflict in between that we have with our children. And I think that the more that we can internalize the values and sort of like take them back, take back the values, whatever it is that you're getting um, from, from your Mormon faith, And from your practice of your religion, I think if you can take back what has been externalized and internalize it, what do you love about going to church? Make sure that your kids know what you love about it. Do you love the hymns? Do you love feeling connected to God? Do you love feeling connected to the community? Communicate it on that personal of a level so that it isn't just like, well, this is what we do because it's right. Because the danger that I see there. When everything is outsourced, when everything is externalized, um, the danger then 
is like, I think probably all of us had friends who went to college, quit going to church. And it was like a real slippery slope into some pretty bad decisions, like actual, like really risky behavior with illicit drugs and all sorts of, you know, just like, I would say immoral behavior in many ways. But if we can raise our children and our families with a sense of like, this is how we are together. This is how we show respect for our bodies. This is how we show respect for other people's bodies. This is how we show respect for God and for other people's views of God, for other people's understandings of God. This is how we are together in our family. This is how we are. Then I think that if it's, if it's that personal and that vulnerable, and it is vulnerable, it requires quite a lot of exposure and quite a lot of seeking and quite a lot of like pondering for parents to be able to personalize their values that deeply and communicate them that personally. But if we can do that, then our children have a shot at sort of taking the gold, sort of like sifting it for gold and taking some of it in and they won't adopt it exactly because it's not their job. They won't internalize it the way that we did. But I think that they will at least internalize um, a sense of goodness and a sense of what's right and what's wrong on, on the deepest level. And that the way that that then is expressed in the world, the way the choices that they, that they make may be different from what we made, may be different from what we wish that they would make. Um, but if we're interested in their development and interested in continuing deep and loving relationships throughout the lifespan, then I think that that's the kind of space that we need to make for each other. And that, that sort of plays along with the, there's a concept that you explain called motivation bias. And I think you were basically talking about it just now, right? That everyone, you know, like, like the, in the book or in the book, in the paper, the example says, you know, parents sort of blame Satan for their child's decisions. The children blame the church for their parents' lack of understanding. Both sides believe they are motivated by love and thoughtfulness, uh, but the others surely are not. And we've talked a lot about familial relationships here, but obviously I think there are a lot of applicable areas where we can talk about this uh, in this day and age. Uh, you know, I, mean, I think the past year has stretched our, a lot of our societal fabric to its its tearing point in many ways. And we it's so easy to get in our own heads and forget that uh, everyone has usually has good motivation for the most part. And we need to try to understand that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Liz. There were some really incredible thoughts there. And I love the, like the practical information that you've been able to give as well that, you know, we've been talking about, um, I think some, uh, like a lot of the interviewees have given some, I think we said like heartbreaking kind of comments and, um, it could be a little too easy to, uh, or at least it was for me, my first reading, I was like these parents, (laughs) Um, yeah. you know, and get kind of frustrated at them, but it's like all um, Tara Westover, like if they're all survivalist <laughs> nuts. Oh it's, my God. Yeah. Some of it was, <laughs> some of it was pretty intense. Um, yeah. but you don't know, I guess like for me, I had to remind myself, I don't know what it's like to be a parent period, um, much less going through that experience. Um, but I love the ideas of bringing it back to the curiosity and I'm finding this more and more exactly what you said, that if we just, if we ask more questions that this is, 
uh, perhaps more helpful way to go um, with, um, yeah, and just trying to connect and better communicate with people instead of, as you say, just the answer is because it's correct and it's the right thing to do. And, you know, some of us are uh, not always as satisfied with that. We want to, you know, we're like the toddlers who are like, why, why? Please explain <laughs> to me why. And um, yeah, so I, I love that idea of just being more curious and just focusing on still um, like the good and the the present and like the situations that we're in now, whether we have you know, friends or children who have left the church. So one one of the things actually I wanted to ask is um, a lot of this has been applicable to parents and to like young adults or children who have gone through this experience. Um, But for the rest of us or say like for myself, you know, who I have quite a few friends who have been through this process of trying to leave the church, like what's something that I could do? to better support them as well, even though there's not like a threat of any sort of like familial disconnection in the next life. But, you know, I don't feel, I personally don't feel like they should be uh, shunned or even just like left behind in any sort of way, because we're not having the social interaction at church. What, what should I be doing more to make sure that they don't feel completely isolated by me? Yeah, I I love that you asked. I think I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I think again that curiosity is the answer here. And I think that people don't ask when someone has when if you know that someone has left the church, it's an uncomfortable sort of a conversation to try to have, I think. And so I think um there are all sorts of fears and insecurities that go into asking why. And I think, I don't know, do you guys know Lindsay Hanson Park? She's like the editor of Sunstone. She does all of this amazing sort of um, Mormon history. And she's she did the podcast A Year of Polygamy. But she just recently, I think a couple of weeks ago, she posted on Facebook um, for all of my ex-Mormon friends, what was the most painful part of leaving? And within 24 hours, she had like almost 400 responses. And they were almost all the same. And it was no one's ever asked me why I left. And I think, um, I think that don't ask, don't tell, that needs to end. I think that um, without exception, the 15 people that I interviewed were so thoughtful. And the reasons, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I had the same experience within my own family. I have one brother who's also inactive. I have two brothers and a sister who are still active. My parents are still active. And we've never talked about why, really. Um, And then I wrote this paper (laughs) and did a a couple of interviews. And my mom found one of the interviews because a neighbor told her about it. And so talk about don't ask, don't tell, right? Like everybody else hears about it before my parents. Um, So this is a a two-way street in my family. I will say that I'm uncomfortable talking about it as well. But my brother Danny actually um, initiated a family conversation over Christmas where we all got together, got together on Zoom um, and really just talked about if we still go, why we go, if we don't go, why we don't go and what has been gained by the choices that we've made and what we feel like we've lost, what has caused us grief. 
for the choices that we've made. And it was so moving. This is not normal for my family. Like we talk about what we heard on NPR. We talk about books that we've read, but we don't talk about personal things very often. And so um, just to be, to have the conversation to say like, what was that like for you? That must have been so painful. I'm so sorry. Um, on both sides. And it was fascinating because there were seven of us and some in, you know, some of the spouses were there as well sharing. And it was so interesting because the reasons that we were going or not going were the same. That the reasons that I'm not going are the same as the reasons for my siblings have that, that, that they're still going. And that is that like, this feels more in alignment. I feel closer to God when I practice my religion this way. I feel closer to God. I feel more understood. I feel so, you know, that like we're all pursuing kind of the same things. We've made different choices um, to try to develop ourselves and our relationship to the divine, however we perceive that. But I think that that understanding is really critical. And that, that was true really for all of the subjects in my study as well, that they, it was not because they were lazy. It was not because they wanted to be able to drink. It was not, you know, like there was just none of that sort of like the casual or like flippant narrative that I hear thrown around sometimes about why people leave the church or like, oh, they were offended. They got their feelings hurt. Like there was none of that. None of it. It was 100%. This is what I need to be to do. This is what I need to do to be in integrity with myself and in integrity to my relationship to the universe, to God, to whatever, whatever it is, however I perceive the universe, this is what's next for me. And so I think that coming into a conversation where you're asking with that sort of a framework and that kind of understanding would be such a game changer. So uh, as we're wrapping up, one, one thing I wanted to let everyone hear you explain is you talk about sort of three themes near the end that you got to from the work. You talked about disconnection, conditional worthiness and love, and certainty of worldview. Obviously, we've hinted at much of this in our discussion. But can you talk about sort of those three overarching themes that seem to permeate all of your different subjects and, and what the relevance is for each one? Yeah. Um, so the theme of disconnection, there were kind of three aspects to that. Um, the first was that, and obviously I'm speaking for the children, not for the parents. And so I want to be really clear that I only talked to the children. Um, so I don't want to be overly um, critical, but these are, yeah, these are the themes that came out from those children. So that the parents were disconnected from themselves, that they were often disconnected from their own desires, their own needs, their own inner voice, kind of that that conversation that we were having earlier about what if there's a conflict between um, what the church wants from me and what I want for me. Um, and then of course, like more often than not for Orthodox Mormons, the church will win out. There was one subject in particular who said that her parents in California um, canvassed for like proposition eight legislation, even though they had gay friends, they were very opposed to like <laughs> banning gay marriage oh, yeah. and they were vocal about that. But then when the, the state president asked them to work um, to try to, yeah, to try to pass that legislation. They did. They went, they just went along with it. And there were a number of just and little I, stories I like that. Strange. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to interrupt, but that, that no. I, I was in California during prop eight and I remember very vividly the council president Monson, I think gave, he said they wanted everyone to be involved and we saw all that, but he said very clearly, like, 
to the degree to which they are comfortable. And then of course you can factor in local leadership pressuring members to do different things. But in my family, we were not super comfy with prop eight and we pretty much took that and just said, well, the degree to which I am comfortable about this is pretty much not being involved in any of the organizational right. <laughs> stuff from it what, what whatsoever. But thankfully, we didn't. I did not have a bishop or a stake president right. sort of right. uh, pressuring me. If anything, I ratted out bishop, people who were trying to use church facilities for uh, things that violate our status as a nonprofit. But anyway, continue. Didn't mean to. <laughs> well, yeah. So, and this, like this question, this. That even that little anecdote anecdote raises so many questions for me about the selfhood of the parents in mm-hmm. this study and why it was so threatened by their children's disaffiliation and like what came first, right? That like the selfhood was maybe not super developed already for these parents. Like if you're if you're saying like, oh, I have gay friends and I'm not for this, but then like, but the stake president said we should, and so we did. Um, I that there's a question there for me, but. Um, So disconnection from self. And I think disconnection from desires is actually a pretty, that's a tricky and it feels like a really important thing to me with Mormons that like what we want, just what we want has a lot of value. And as parents, having the kind of family that we want um, has a lot of value. And so knowing what we want in our families and in our lives and just being able to identify desire in particular is such a huge part of developing selfhood. Um, that when it's sort of shunted to the side and when for women in particular, one of the primary values that's um, valued, I'm going to say, is selflessness, then like suddenly having desires and knowing what you want and knowing that you can go get it looks pretty bad. It looks like it's in conflict with selflessness, which when, when selflessness is promoted as a virtue. And so it's messy. I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot there. And then one of the sort of um, one of the ways in which damage was done by the lack of connection to self in these parents was that because they were maybe not super connected to themselves or not really developed in themselves, they had difficulty connecting to their children. And so you can't you can only connect to other people to the same degree that you're connected to yourself. It's just a feature of development that if you're developed and you know what you want, you know what you're about, um, you know how you think, you know how you feel, you know what you want, then connecting to other people is a possibility. But if you haven't done that work in developing selfhood, connecting to other people, there's really like there's nobody on the other side of it. Right. And so um, the children all felt almost all of them within the study. Like there was just, there was nobody there to connect with. Um, And one of the ways that that often played out was with fathers in particular, that they would take sort of a presiding religious authority role within the family rather than a fatherly role. And there were a couple of subjects who were brothers actually, um, who talked about that they would only go, they would only talk to their dad in his office. He would call them into his office for like a PPI, like a personal progress interview. And they would open and close with a prayer. And like, that was it. That was their relationship with their dad growing up. And that was the most extreme version of the presiding religious authority father that I heard, but it was not the only version. There were lots of versions of that that were maybe less extreme, but like echoed the same formality and the same disconnection, I would say, where there's really nobody there to connect with on a personal level. There's just somebody there telling you um, that what you're doing is either right or wrong. And that was sort of the parenting mode for a bunch of these parents. 
And then the third form of disconnection, which we've talked about a little bit, was disconnection from the present moment. And just sort of that emphasis on the eternal family and the ways in which it takes parents out of time and into this sort of like anxiety about the eternal future that they've lost. Um, and then the certainty of worldview, that was, again, universal, that all of my subjects talked about parents who um, were so certain in their rightness and in the truth claims of the Mormon church that they just were completely incurious and not just incurious about differing perspectives, but I would say it's somewhat threatened about differing perspectives. And so they, again, like, like we already said, they had never asked what was going on with their kids or why they had quit going to church, why they were uncomfortable, what the problems might be. Um, and then if the children ever tried to express any of that, it was seen as angry or inappropriate or that they were under the influence of Satan or, um, you know, like that their perceptions were anti-Mormon, which is a really like, I think a really hurtful thing to tell someone who's struggling and kind of saying like, Hey, I just learned this wacky thing about Brigham Young. And then to have someone come back at their own history and saying like, well, that's anti-Mormon. You shouldn't be reading that stuff. Like, well, it's, this is more like, this is Mormon history. And if our own history is anti-Mormon, I think we're in trouble. And so if it's that sort of like bifurcation of, of, I don't know. I think there's got to be a better way to integrate all of it. That like our history is weird as crap. (laughs) It just is. It's so crazy. Um, And maybe there's a way that Joseph Smith could be um, deceived and maybe taking advantage some of the time and also inspired. Like, is there a way to hold some nuance there that like, what if he was divinely inspired and he was off the mark some of the time? What if he doesn't need to be perfect to be um, worthwhile as a leader of a movement? And so that piece of the nuance was completely missing for these parents. They were not able to hold duality or paradox or nuance in that sense. Um, and then what was the last one? What was the last theme of my research? I forgot. It's your paper, <laughs> Liz. You should know it front and back. No. I um, can't she recite it. I'm out of Just out kidding. Of I'm words. kidding. I'm kidding. The, uh, the other one was like, it, the oh, other one was, uh, I think it was like conditional worthiness. Yeah, yeah, conditional yeah. worthiness and love. That's right. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, and that was we've talked no, about that. You're doing great, Liz. <laughs> so, <laughs> the conditional construct of worthiness and love was, and we've talked about that. I think I don't know if you guys have more questions about it, but I think just that idea of if we if we need to be good enough for our parents' love then that translates directly into we also need to be good enough for our parent for for God's love. Um, there's no there's just no difference for children. And so the damage that that does is creating that sort of space where you're presenting a false self um, 
And then you know, you know the real self when you're growing up. You know all of the deficits. You know all of the differences between what your leaders believe about you and what you know about you or what your parents believe about what you and the truth that you know of your own experience. And I think the more, as parents in particular, the more that we can do to sort of like close that gap up, um, that gap, that space where all the shame is, that is the breeding ground for all mental illness. It just is like that is that is where things really, really go wrong internally. And so the more that we can close that up and again, like integrate that, like you are worthy of love and belonging. You are worthy of God's love and my love, even when I don't show it to you perfectly. I get frustrated because I'm also human. I lose my temper. And you know, what? I was really out of control back there and I blew it. And I know that was scary for you. And I'm so sorry. It's like parenting from that place. Of when I lose it with you, it's not because of you. And when you feel distant from God, it's not like it's not because of God. That's just you're always good enough. It's not because of what you do. It's not because of what you don't do. It's because you are. And it's because you you have God in you. I believe deeply that we all have divinity within us. And I think that as parents, we could do a lot better at teaching our children that and teaching our children that when they know something in their gut, that is the Holy Ghost working in them. That is God. That's the God part that's alive and well and begging to be seen and acknowledged. And that then to go in contradiction to that, that is what takes us away from God, that shutting that down in deference to some sort of external authority is never going to be a good idea. And so I think that just teaching our children that we trust them and see them and love them. And we don't under, if we don't understand what they're up to, if we think it looks like they're just being crazy, that we will want to know more. Like, please tell me more, help me to understand. That's one of my favorite phrases with children is like, help me to understand because it signals to them that you're suddenly on the same side. They want to be understood, and now they know that you also want to understand them. And so just giving lots and lots of space for those conversations and trying to integrate more and close up that gap a little bit more so that that space between the the portrayed false self and the real self is eliminated. I think that's where mental health and real intimacy and real connection, the kind of thing that I think we all want with our children, that's where it's found. This has been very engaging. Uh, Liz, much appreciation for uh, offering your insights to us. Um, everybody, thank you for tuning in this week to This Week in Mormons. You can find us, of course, at thisweekinmormons.com. Visit us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. We hope you'll interact with us through those various uh, fora. And uh, if you have not subscribed to the show, we encourage you to do so wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And a big shout out once again to our Patreon supporters. Thank you for helping us keep the lights on. You can also do the same at patreon.com slash This Week in Mormons. And I will send you a personal note with my love and affection. It would be lovely of all of you. Uh, Liz Brown McDonald, <laughs> wonderful research you're doing. Seriously, thank you for joining us this week. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Josie. Mm, thank you, Jeff. <laughs> Just bye give bye. me a moment to Until praise we meet me. <laughs> <laughs> praise Josie. Sorry. Until we meet again, everybody, be well, be holy, and be happy. Bye.